What's going on, Bituation Room listeners? This is your host, Francesca Fiorentini, who thought that it would be a better idea to record this intro in the morning instead of the evening. But then she forgot to sleep with her air purifier on, and now she sounds like she wants to do a depression of Michael Kide. A Michael Kide presents this next episode. But that's okay because this episode of The Bituation Room Live is so effing good. I am super excited to present it to you. It features Nato Green, my live co-host, and the author and union organizer Jane McAlevey, who is incredibly badass and inspiring and just puts everything into perspective in this year where nothing really makes sense and we're all kind of scared about November. But she breaks it down and kind of gives us a talking to in terms of what it means to really win economic justice and fight for working people slash all Americans. And I love it. The other thing it has are new jokes from Nato Green and I. Oh my God. For those of you who've never seen either of us live, um, we have a bunch of new jokes for you. So, um, you know, you get the scraps, but you know, you take what you get. So enjoy this episode, give it five stars, and keep that candle burning for more episodes. I may bring this podcast back, but, uh, you know, life is in flux, and I may need your help to bring it back. So stay tuned. Welcome to the Bituation Room Live from San Francisco. How you feeling? After a long hiatus, that's how you say it, uh, we're back. I am your host, Francesca Fiorentini, and this is my uh, off and on live host, Nato Green, comedian and union organizer. Give it up for Nato. Thanks for that. Uh, Yeah, so uh, this was a special occasion. We decided to resurrect the Bituation Room Live from the Dead just for you people tonight. Uh, We resurrected it because uh, the great Jane McAlevey. Uh, has a new book out um, uh, about organizing and some other bullshit. I think. Look, I can't. I don't have time to read. Um, so uh, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the graphic novel. So anyway, Jane has a new book out about organizing. Yeah, I read it, um, and uh, it's great. And so we've been talking, and she was like, you know, you know what, NATO? She called me up. Uh, she woke me up from a deep uh, nap because um, na- I'm good at napping. She woke me up and she said, NATO, you know what? I have a new book coming out, and I've had it. I'm having it up to here with Robert Reich. I'm fucking sick of some podcasts. I need some but like. What about the animations though? They're so yeah, good. I, uh, she didn't say anything bad about Robert. It's a whiteboard. Robert. So okay. and she was like, you know, I'm tired of like stuffy intellectuals and people with like elbow patches and whatnot on their blazer. NATO wears elbow tweeds. patches. Uh, I wear, for the record. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm like the, oh, elbow patch like on the inside. You know what I mean? Like I'm sort of. Uh, Your soul is an elbow a, patch. My soul is just an elbow patch. If you <laughs> underneath this, it's just one big elbow patch. Um, so she was like, "Can we do something uh, like in a nightclub uh, with jokes and alcohol, where we talk about organizing and whatnot and some other?" And uh, and I was like, "Sure, yeah, we can definitely do that." Um, and she's in the back. Let her hear it, you guys. Yeah. She is. She is. <laughs> Uh, 
uh, NATO and I, I mean, the Bituation Room is a place where, uh, you know, humor and politics, you know, revolutionary ones can, like, come together and just, like, make sweet, sweet love. You're going you're to have to take out the mention of revolution oh, for your right, right. bright future um, on MSNBC. Yeah. They're not going to approve of that revolution true. talk. This is true. So. You know, I'm not going to get more episodes. Uh, you, guys, uh, you guys have DVR? Cool. Uh, no. TiVo that. TiVo, TiVo that shit. No, uh, we'll make it happen. I'm infiltrating uh, one step at a time. But, but in the meantime, we've got the this podcast. The union term is salting. You're salting, MSNBC. <laughs> I'm salting. Listen, yeah. if you ever see me in an Escalade, I'm salting the rich. It's yeah. possible. <laughs> All right. Don't hold it against me. Yeah. No, I will never do that. Um, so a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of you know, uh, some, some of you know me and Francesca from, uh, from other things, and, and people come see us and they're like, NATO, fucking sick of your jokes. Have new jokes, Oats. and so Francesca and I. Same wrote with some, Francesca. Uh, and and say they said this, they they also Jane called me up and was like I'm sick of Francesca's act, Robert Reich and Francesca. So Francesca and I decided this seemed like a good time. We were going to try out new jokes for you. You guys ready for some yeah. new jokes? Yeah. Hell yeah! You're watching the sausage being made. These jokes might not be good, and that's fine. Yeah. Who's starting? Uh, let me see. Uh. Oh, here's one. I am uh, such a communist that when I look at my iPhone and my battery is on 1%, I smash it with a guillotine. <laughs> wow, that's very good. Uh, okay. C Disposable income. <laughs> uh, mine are a little bit longer, but uh, I feel like people are afraid of Medicare for all because they're afraid of like losing their health care plan, and I, for one, fucking hate my health care plan. Does anyone else hate their health care plan? Yeah, it's awful. Uh, I went and I, I have Kaiser now, uh, pay way too much for it. And I was like, you know when you have like a first doctor's appointment with like a new doctor and you're like, oh my God, it's like a first date, you know, like is this gonna be the one, you know, like the one that I tell about that rash. Um, so I'm there and I'm waiting in the waiting room. I've got like that like fucked up gown on and I'm all cold. And uh, the, the woman who checks me in, I guess she's a nurse. I don't know. Yeah, the nurse who checks me in. She's like, do you mind um, if a resident does your intake? I was like, yeah, no, that's, fine, that's fine. It's fine. So then um, I wait for five more minutes and a child walks in. <laughs> just, just like hasn't been on earth for two decades. And he's like asking me all these personal questions. Like, sir, are you um, like sexually active <laughs> full are you sexually active like what the fuck that's it it's going places nato uh, i'm uh concerned about uh war with iran i went to the the anti-war march um and uh it was like usual suspects a lot of a lot of old white people and lefties came out a lot of like the usual array of it was like it could have been the same signs of any anti anything march that i've been to yeah. in the last 25 years it's just like you know uh end capitalism end imperialism end white supremacy and also like the random people like us out of my hulu plus it's like why is that guy here <laughs> And then, you know, and then the people side by side being like, all lives matter, but not Palestinians. And then somebody else like, but Palestinians can also be people, please. Maybe, you know, like that was happening. It was a good time. Uh, okay, maybe. <laughs> B minus. It's a long banner. It's just a long, that's why like I can't protest with, about like the Mueller report because it's just too long, you know? It's like, and then WikiLeaks, like that already is a whole banner. You can't do it. Um, Let's see, I, I think uh, like 
having a billion dollars doesn't mean you're a shitty person, you know, but all billionaires are pieces of shit. Uh, that's just <laughs> real. Like currently though, currently, like we might have a good billionaire at some point. I just think being a billionaire is like the closest that humankind has to having a superpower. Think about it, like, it's the like you can go anywhere you want, you can do anything, it's the closest thing we have to being a, a, a super, having a superpower. But just because you have a superpower doesn't mean you're a superhero, all right? Let's make a distinction, okay? Like imagine, if those of us suddenly tomorrow had a fucking superpower, right? Like we were invisible. Yeah, we'd like to think that we would reunite family members or like, you know, stop crimes from happening, but most of us would just be watching Idris Elba in the shower. Like that's <laughs> what we would do, you know? And like, yeah, we would do good things from time to time. Like if he was gonna slip on a bar of soap, <laughs> we'd stop him, you know, from doing that. But other, you know, and that's what I think about billionaires. Just because you have a billion dollars doesn't mean you're a superhero. You got a superpower. And that's fine, and your origin story is totally different, right? Like, billionaires have different origin stories than superheroes. Like, instead of, you know, uh, falling into a vat of poison, they uh, dump a vat of poison into a river. And that's just very different. Are you saying that Jeff Bezos is watching Idris Elba in the shower? Absolutely. That, that's why on Jeff Bezos' Amazon, is like you might also like this naked poster of Idris <laughs> Elba. <laughs> um, so uh, the state of California uh, passed AB5, uh, which you all know about it. It's a uh, design it addresses the abuse of independent contractors in the state, and some independent some work some independent contractors and freelancers are upset about it because their status as independent contractors uh, it's it, it gives a lot of employers like it because it. it Result, re, uh, relieves them of their responsibility to provide safe working conditions and benefits and fair pay and stuff like that. And workers like it because it gives them the freedom to fuck off and die on their own terms. <laughs> um, and so workers like that. Now, the, the law... Um, no one's going to tell me when to fuck off and die. That's right. <laughs> Uh, and, but the law uh, says that you can't classify someone as an independent contractor if what they do is core to your business. And so Uber's trying to say uh, that drivers are not core to our business, they're just a tech company. And so for Uber to say that, that people driving cars is not part of their business, they're just a tech company, uh, that's sort of like the NFL saying that the football games are incidental to their business and that their core business model is giving brain damage to black people. Uh, <laughs> Go Niners! You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Go Niners! <laughs> I have two more bits. What about you? Sure. Okay. Uh, I think the revolution needs a rebrand, you know, because it's like, it's not cool right now. And I think it just needs, like, I don't think it'll be televised, but it needs a rebrand, let's be real, you know, because, just think about it, like, bef nobody liked basic training, and then they invented CrossFit, and they're like, oh my God, yell at me harder! You know, that became a thing, you know? So we just need a dude with, like, endless abs and tons of tattoos, you know, named, like, Ren, you know? And he's like, today, I'm gonna teach you how to deadlift a police car. Like, that... <laughs> <laughs> you 
you know, like count your steps while running from tear gas. Yeah. <laughs> we need to do that. Like the, the revolution right now is not cool. It's just a woman in her 60s with an obese pug dressed in too much lavender going, I have a detergent allergy. You know, it's... <laughs> that might apply to some people in this room. I'm sorry. <laughs> so sorry. Love pugs. Um... <laughs> It's the Super Bowl tomorrow. Um, True. And uh, some people like sports. Uh, I'm not a big fan of sports. Some people like sports. I prefer to derive my sense of self-worth from my own achievements. And uh, uh, <laughs> I don't... Uh, Folding the laundry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm handy in the kitchen. Come on. Um, so... Uh, but you know, I think I, I think people don't even like sports. I think what they like is the sensation of being a fan. They just like rooting for something, and that's why I don't like sports. Like I have a team, I root for a team, but it's the uh, global working class. Uh, and, uh, I'm rooting for them. They keep losing though, uh, but I feel like next season might be our year. Um, got a all-star lineup coming in. All right. I don't know how I feel about that. I, I don't like sports either, but wow, NATO. Um, all right, this one's a little bit more developed, but uh, uh, I am a journalist, and uh, I like to watch and listen to and read all kinds of media, all kinds of media, uh, except for one uh, channel that I find offensive, and I think we all know which one I'm talking about. <laughs> NPR, motherfuckers, <laughs> all right? <laughs> Fuck NPR. Don't clutch your tote bags all at once, okay? <laughs> Let me be real with you. Like, at a time when, like, nothing is chill, NPR is way too chill. <laughs> right? Do you notice this? Like, no matter what is happening in the world, you know, like, continents are on fire, Nazis are back, NPR reporters always sound like they're at a spa in a chalet in Aspen, you know? <laughs> it's like, good evening, I'm Kai Rizdal. <laughs> President Trump launched World War III today, and I have a hot towel around my scrotum. <laughs> They're like, good evening, I'm Windsor Johnston. Hundreds of migrant children may never be reunited with their families, and tiny fish are eating the dead skin off my feet. Like, it's way too fucking chill, right? Like, and they always have like weird names, you know? Like, I'm not talking like ethnically weird names, but like, White people weird, you know? <laughs> Kai Rizdahl, Windsor Johnston. I got a whole list right here. Uh, hang on one second. Uh, uh, let's see. Cherry Glazer, come on. Libby Dankman. <laughs> Dina Temple Raston. Nell Greenfield Boyce, like these. <laughs> These are names of white kids that grew up in a home with three parents. You know what I mean? Like, like they breastfed till they were 12. They didn't have anything but chickpea flour till they were 15. Mandalit Del Barco. Mandalit Del Barco. That's not a name. That's the safe word of a librarian, okay? Like, Mandalit Del Barco. I realize, though, you can find out what uh, your, you know how you get your porn star name and your soap opera name? I, you can get your NPR name by taking the first three letters of your mother's maiden name and adding it to her favorite kind of tea. Uh, 
Mine is Chai Numi. Isn't that perfect? Good evening, I'm Chai Numi. A gunman opened fire in a preschool today. And I'm getting a hot stone massage. <laughs> Good evening. All right. Okay. Oh. One more? You one got? More. I got one more. All right, NATO's got one more. I got one more, Even but it'll be a good transition. We'll see. Uh, look, I didn't try that hard. Um, uh, so, liberals say some weird things, uh, and one of the things that I that you hear a lot that I'm really not a fan of, uh, and I think it is a perfect transition into our conversation with Jay McAlevey, is uh, people say, speak truth to power. Uh, fucking no, don't speak truth to power. Uh, that implies that power is someone else and that you don't have power. Power doesn't need you to speak truth to them. Power fucking knows truth. Uh, what you need is to murder power and take their power. <laughs> yeah! Enough with the talking. How about no more blah, blah, blah and just take, just take seize power. Non-violently, uh, of course. Spe- seize give truth to power. Give me a job, MSNBC. Yeah. All right. You guys give it up for NATO Green and me. <laughs> And uh, before we bring out Jane, we have some stragglers. So there's a seat over here. There's an empty seat over here. There's two up there. There's some back there. So feel free to squeeze in, make some friends. Without further ado, um, you have perhaps read her books, A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing in the Fight for Democracy, or No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in a New Gilded Age, or Raising Expectations, Raising Hell, which came out in 2012. She is... uh, The labor movement's Marie Kondo. (laughs) She is a badass force of nature. Please welcome organizer Jane McAlevey. Hi, Jane. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, but I have I have a uh, first confession, which may... Oh, uh, I thought we were about to get feedback no, yeah, on no. our jokes. Oh, no, oh, yeah. That's no, coming later. I'm not doing semantics or rap checks or anything right now, but um, uh, I, don't, I have no idea who Marie Kondo is. Oh. Uh. <laughs> Just saying. I don't get out a lot. Just saying. Um, she's a hyper-consumerist, dirty capitalist. Like, just... she No, uh... It's not important we don't have right now. Okay, good. All right. Never mind. Okay. Good. Uh, so, um, so we're super excited to talk to you about your oeuvre um, for this podcast. I just and so we were, we were we were working earlier at my house and we I uh, typed up some questions and then I printed them out and because it's my house and I have the day job that I have, uh, it, but all of our our questions are printed on the back of draft contract proposals. Yes. Um, so. Uh, if I turn the page over wrong, I may ask you about uh, nur- section of the article? per diem nurse seniority scheduling. Oh, yeah. I'm, so, re- I'm ready for that. Um, I hope Nina, you're ready. What's your to, job? Uh, I work for SEIU, local 10 to 1. Uh, <laughs> represented in the house tonight. Um, I, do, I do contract negotiations. Very cool. Uh, so, we, we, so our audience, I, I hope you all have drinks because we're going to play drinking games with Jay McAlevey. Uh, how do you think about that? We realize that's a redundant question uh, because you're all union organizers, so you know you have to be. <laughs> you have to be able to hold your liquor, and because uh, you know Jane's been organizing for how many years now? Twenty-five. Thirty. Thirty-five. Thirty-five years. She's written 
Three books. Three books. Um, there's a lot of terminology uh, that we want to get insider. into. A lot of insider baseball. We're going to play a drinking game with y'all. Every time one of these words is mentioned, <laughs> you all must drink. And we'll drink, too. And we will drink, too. Let's go over them very quickly. Yeah. Uh, plan to win. Plan to win. Yeah. Uh, boss. Pretty self-explanatory. Uh, fuck. Fuck. Jane, what is fucking? Um, what is fuck? The uh, boss. The boss. Uh, framing the hard choice. Leaders. Capitalism. Bust, as in union busting. Or a nut. All right, I'm sorry. That was speaking of, speaking well, of fucking, uh, structure test and uh, 90%. 90%, so, very interested in this one. I thought we were all about the 99%. I'm the only one who's never worked in a union here, so I apologize. I'm going to ask the yeah. dumb questions. Yeah. If you've got dumb yeah, she, questions. She was, she's, I said 90%, and, and she was like, so we just lost 10%? We lost 9%? <laughs> we're, we're going backwards since 2011? What the fuck, Dato? Awesome. All right, you, you guys got this? Okay. So, uh, to begin... So if I'm thirsty, I can just say fuck? Yeah. Yes. Okay, yeah, I yeah. won't do that yet, though. All right. Uh, she said it. But you have to... Tequila. Um, so, uh, you know, for, for me as a, as a hybrid comedian union organizer, uh, people often ask me to make fun of the labor movement, but I think it's tacky to make fun of the dead. So... <laughs> Fight me, you cowards! Uh, so, in your assessment, in terms of the arc of the American labor movement, would you describe our current state as completely fucked or mostly fucked? Oh. We're, yeah, we're gonna run out of tequila. Uh, especially if the word fuck is up there. But, um... Uh, mostly or no? Uh, no, I'm. I think it's neither, dude. Like I'm feeling a little bit of optimism, and the optimism begins in yeah, yeah. I am. I'm feeling like more optimistic than I have been in a long time because the number of workers who are walking off the job uh, and going on strike in this country, and we hit like a high watermark for the first time in the last 30 years. Um, and I think it is our only way out of the goddamn crisis is when a lot more of that starts happening. So I feel a little optimistic. Okay, uh, I didn't want to bring statistics into this, uh, but new Bureau of Labor Stats did come out only recently. 6.2% uh, of the private sector and 33.6% of the public sector is unionized. This is a new low for America. Why do you have hope, though, Jane? Oh, because uh, the last time that we were at s roughly 6% in the private sector um, was in 1932. And there were all these prognosticators who were like uh, from the American Economic Association, I, all these people I quote in the back of that new book. Um, and they literally, too bad I don't have the page of where it is, but I literally like quote this dude in 1932 who was the most powerful economist at the time, giving this huge speech in 1932, just before, you know what happened in 1932, just before the election in 1932, saying that because the structure of the economy had changed so much in the United States, 
Unions were functionally done, they were gone, they were at 6% and they were gone. And then I hope you understand that what happened several years after that speech was the largest number of strikes and the largest period of growth in the American labor movement and unions, and by the way, the most equalization of corporate power um, ever for the 12 years it lasted. So I like 6% because I'm feeling like it's 1932, personally. So you're, you're saying we might be on the brink of something new. Yeah, and it's up to it's up to us to like be on the brink of something new. You know what I mean? It's like people are standing up and walking off the job, and if you think about who the Supreme Court is right now, uh, uh, if you think about like the actual power structure in this country, um, to be honest, there isn't any way out really at this point except a lot more workers walking off the job and creating a total crisis for capitalism. Capitalism. We heard capitalism. I love that there's all these like Robert's Rules of Order motherfuckers out here who are like, you made a rule, we're gonna follow it. Um, so, I, I guess I was just, my question is, as someone who's outside of the labor movement um, and who sees like all these other issues, um, uh, and, and whether it's, you know, climate change or women's rights or, um, you know, like focusing on the Senate or, uh, you know, Bl Black Lives Matter, racial justice, like any number of these issues, why, even with the weakness of the labor movement, um, like why don't we focus on doing something like easier than trying to revive the labor movement, you know, like just overthrowing the government, you know, like that would be easier. easier. Uh, like why, why labor? Why prioritize um, this? Uh, I think uh, sticking with uh, some of my favorite words, it's good that one of them didn't make it up there. It's kind of funny it didn't, but power um, uh, and power structure analysis. Um, I think it's for a simple reason, which is that uh, the bosses and or capitalism, but the bosses and capitalism, by the way, care about one thing and one thing only. And I mean literally, that's my opinion, they care about, besides getting more rich and more yachts, which we know, they care a lot about one thing and one thing only, and that's that workers show up and make them money. And so when we think about all the other avenues available to us, and voting matters, and all those protests matter, and I'm like the first one to hang off the side of a building on a good march, climb, scale something, volunteer to jump off it, take the bridge, whatever. Um, all of those things have been true. Slow down. Only, there are only two we'll times. hold you to that. There are only like two times, right, that the bridge was taken in this city, and I was like on the lead flank of one of them. That was 1991 in a protest. It's kind of scary when you realize that the SWAT teams were coming in both directions on the Bay Bridge. But anyway, um, the truth is, when it comes to like, how do you create a crisis? For me, the only time in our history that big, powerful bosses uh, in this country, whether it was the Civil Rights Movement or the earlier trade union movement, the only time that we have forced uh, them into like grand bargains to share power and share wealth is when a real crisis is being created in the economic arena. And even in the Civil Rights Movement, like part of what I told in No Shortcuts is that there's a whole analogy that even in the Civil Rights Movement, it wasn't until they began to mess with the economic sectors in the South strategically that we began to force a grand bargain that Johnson and company began to set down with King, and certainly it was true in the 1930s. And so, uh, yeah, the economic arena is a place we have to fight way harder, um, and workers walking off the job, and the trade union movement is like the first way to do that, in my opinion. She passed my test, ladies so, and gentlemen. Wait a minute. What about podcasting, though? 
Super, that's like the second most important thing we have to do yeah. to like bring down capitalism is definitely podcast. And, okay, so, and laugh. so mass workers walking off the job and number podcast. two, podcasting. Yeah. The strategic priorities. The voting is in there too, by the way. But. Talk, talk more about, uh, about power. It seems like um, like on the left, there's like a lot, people talk a lot, or in, in the United States, there's sort of a lot of like about, you know, speaking up and standing up and, uh, you know, I, um, I, there was okay, a, cl- a classic uh, joke on my first album, The NATO Green Party, who can forget it? Uh, <laughs> that, uh, it'll be for sale after the show. It'll be for sale show. after the show outside. Um, that, uh, you know, o- I feel like often we would rather protest losing than win. Um, so wh- l- how do you think that came about, that people, like, that so much of pro- sort of progressive left politics in America developed this aversion to thinking about power in a strategic, serious way? And specifically, p- uh, thinking about winning. Like, yeah. wh- why, why aren't we, are we just not good at, uh, do we not understand what it means to win, or are we not serious about winning? Do we, don't claim the vic- do we not claim victories? Yeah, I think those are all uh, deeply interrelated and kind of complicated, by the way. But, um, yeah, you know, there are so many times in my life when I am, and this is not true, by the way, when I'm working with workers, so I think this is really interesting. Like, when I'm in a crowd that is, like, a more liberal or progressive crowd, and, uh, you know, people who are not, like, who who don't have their first identity as workers going to work, and you say the word, if I'm doing a training for students or for a women's group or... I don't know, fill in the blank, environmental group, and you say the word power, and people are like, but we don't want power, like that's a, they, like, that's a bad, like power's a bad thing. And I'm always like, okay, well fuck, that's all I want, right? Like our side needs all power. Like the only way like to level these guys is to figure out how to like we build up more power than them and take theirs away. And people are like, no, but it's, it's you know, power is in a zero-sum game. There's a whole rap about there that people kind of fear the idea of power. And I think it's why it's a word I spend a lot of time talking about. But by the way, it is not an unusual word, right? Like you, in negotiations, like workers get it. Like when you're sitting in negotiations with thousands of workers and some evil boss, like I have never had someone ha- oh. Um, I have never uh, had like workers be like, no, actually that's cool. Let's that power's a bad word, Jane. You know what I mean? Like workers in negotiations do not fear the word power, but liberals fear the word power a lot. And I also think that um, I also think that like there's this idea that we're supposed to be nice, um, and uh, on the you know being on the largely losing end of the class war most of my life. Although I think some of us are on the like proudly narrowly speaking okay. on the winning proudly end. Proudly losing. Yeah. Proudly. Yeah, losing. but I hate that shit. Just like when you said speak truth to power, like that makes me crazy. And the other thing that makes me crazy, I have to say, my pet peeve when you were saying that when I was back there listening and laughing at your funny jokes, uh, both of you. <laughs> I. Um, the other one that really makes me cringe is uh, when you're out in the protesting in the streets and there's like 40 white people and they're like, this is what democracy looks like. <laughs> and I'm like, fucking not the democracy I'm fighting for, like at all, like not even close to it. Not you people and not the street corner, none of it. So do um, not chant that this audience, okay? Yeah, do not, also, like, don't look around you at all right now. Um, <laughs> let's pretend. Um, no, but it's like, so, yeah, anyway, I mean, I think winning really matters. Can we add to the list? Can I, I have one more? Winning really matters. Yeah, what else? Uh, oh, love trumps hate? Oh, yeah. I was like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> 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 winning matters.
matters. Dumb slogans that we say all the time that totally irritate me. 99% versus 1% annoys the fuck out of me, too, but that's a detail. Um, all of them. Yeah. Because I, I also hate the 2%. I hate probably the top 15%. <laughs> any day. Um, but about winning, like, do you feel like, I'm, I mean, I think... I'm obsessed with winning. Yeah. yeah. I hate losing, and I mostly feel like, um, you know, and I think this, I don't know, I don't know Nehu's work as much, but I know that I love it, and I, I literally am so delighted that he, like, took the bait on this, and was like, yeah, let's do it. Keep um, it that way. That's a really I, wonderful you know, there place. Are some of yeah, us she's, who actually she's like fallen to off win. about me. It's great um, to be naive about Nato Green. I think yeah. that's wonderful. <laughs> winning like we win like there are a whole set of people out there who work with workers and um we uh, actually know how to win and there's a whole you know the, every book i write is about like what are the uh, my favorite two so- topics which is method and discipline um, and i don't mean like in sex right i mean like method and discipline is like the thing i'm obsessed about all the time because i will give you five dollars if you write a book about method and discipline in sex like, <laughs> uh, i'll give you i'll give you five hundred please please someone write that book uh, <laughs> But um, talk about a structure test. Am I right, everybody? What's <laughs> up? Cosmo's gonna write a whole thing about. Are you structure testing your sex position? <laughs> like, structure test that ass. What's up? <laughs> Bam. <laughs> um, so there's so m- I have so many questions about that winning. I mean, I think that uh, is is it a little bit like if we get the power, we don't know what to do do with it? Yeah, definitely. But also, it's not even get the power. It's, it's more because uh, the idea that when we win an election, we have powers, like that's false, right? Like winning an election is like step one of actually then building power to make real change. So what the left is so feeble at and Would you say that too, it's dialectical? <gasps> <gasps> that's a big I did Everyone the needs to finish their drink right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like, there's this idea. I mean, one of the reasons I love, well, there's so many reasons I love being a union organizer. Um, but one of them is because in the work that we do, like, I spent most of my adult life in the labor movement helping workers form new unions and then winning first contracts. Not all of it, but a lot of it, like a lot of it. And there's something that's very super clear about how power works when you're doing new organizing because you win a hard as hell election, like, hard as hell. Union busters, killing people, firing people, by the way. Mm. There's some amazing workers in this room. We might get to them uh, soon. But like union busters come in, they start firing. There's hell going on. It's like terrorism in the workplace. Um, And then you win like the National Labor Board Relations Election. That's the NLRB. And instead of thinking like we do in civic elections in this country, like, oh, we won. Let's go home now. It's like November, whatever day it is. Right, right. We have to then win the first contract because nothing actually changes unless the workers then have the power to then build the power to actually win something real and meaningful in their contract. I mean, I think that's what we're seeing right now in national elections is like there are people who are voting to win so that they don't have to do any more work. (laughs) And there are people who are organizing and voting so that when they win, there will be a whole... Revolution. Yes, and a lot more work, which is part of the reason I'm like... You know, maybe uh, Klobuchar is good, you know? <laughs> She's got some good ideas, and I don't have to leave my house on the weekends. Time um, for some clobmentum. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I want to ask about, um, about like, becoming politicized by be- being part of a union and, and striking. I had a, I had a, can I ask a follow-up question about winning first? Fuck you. Okay. 
No, you can, you can. You can, just got to drink first. Um, that, that what the idea that you're talking about, about sort of what, like what it looks like to have a plan for after you win, to be able to keep doing it. To and govern. build on it, to govern. Yeah. Um, like, can you talk some about sort of what it, what it would mean to, to expand that to things outside the labor movement? So like, you know, in my lifetime, there's been a, these sort of waves of what I call like movement moments where like, you know, in uh, late, in December of 2016, none of us knew that the Women's March was right around the corner and three million people were gonna be in the streets and that the airport takeovers were about to happen. And it's not like when we got three million, like organizer brain, you're like, okay, if I wanna get three million people in the street, that means I need to ask 12 million people and assume that 50% of them will say yes and then 50% of those people will flake and then I need to do reminder calls and then the day after, I'm gonna call everyone who didn't come and tell them what they missed. You don't have a that, list of the three yeah. million people? And so then I'm gonna phone bank, like that's how I've organized everything that I've organized, but then sometimes some, some things happen and it's like, hey, where'd you guys come from? I thought we were just gonna walk around a little bit and then go get some falafels and it was gonna see you at the next thing. Sign in in the sign-in sheet. Sign in the sign-in sheet. Oh, we're gonna keep walking? Damn, I was thought we were gonna like go to, you know. So what is it, it feels like we're not, like sometimes these things happen where it really does catch on and like there's a surge of activity that we're not prepared to tap into and harness and then govern. So what would it look like if you sort of applied that kind of organizer brain to other contexts when they when those when we get to winning? This is the biggest fucking follow-up question Sorry. ever, <laughs> motherfucker. I'll see you guys in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> no, I act I mean I part of what I try and talk about in the new book is is I do make that analogy. Like I really think that there are tremendous lessons, despite the 6%, despite the you know, careening uh, percentage of workers in America who are in unions, the truth is for, for people who are still winning, like there's a ton of real applicable lessons that we should carry from the trade union movement into the idea of how to build power and win outside of the sort of negotiation, National Labor Relations Board election format uh, that I spent most of my adult life in. Because the many of them, one is, um, you don't get shit uh, when you win the election. Like you literally, like nothing matters if you don't build even more power right after the election. Like you actually have to build more power in the labor movement, the lesson learned is we win the election, we can even win the election because it's a 50%, 50% plus one, right? So like I've recently, one of the stories I talk about in the book is a really hard as hell fight in Philadelphia we made a decision that we could actually win the 51% like election threshold by leaving a few key huge departments out, which we call biggest worst. That'd be like Texas and Alabama and a few other states, um, like in organizer turf language. Um, and we, we calculated that IRI Inc., by the way, this super serious professional union buster who's now in Google, just saying, who Google hired, little innocent Google just hired these professional union busters. And we can see that already, that what their behavior is. But so um, we were fighting them, a whole bunch of nurses in this hospital in Philadelphia a couple years ago. And we made the decision we had to go or we might lose. Momentum was like sliding backwards. When you start firing people, it gets a little bit ugly, as some people in this room know. So um, we decided to go for the election. We could win it at 51%, but then in order to actually have the power 
to force the kind of victory that those nurses were fighting for in their hospital, like way better staffing standards, like maybe I can take care of my patients today, um, then you actually have to build what we call a 90% minimum threshold. Woo! Drank everybody listening at home. It, like you have to get to 90% in this country, pathetic. You have to get to no less than 90% of the workers ready to walk off the job, united and strong. That's a credible strike threat, we call it. And if you don't have a credible strike threat, like the boss doesn't really know that you're actually, can't just say, oh, we're gonna go on strike. Like the boss has to know that you're ready to go on strike and right. we demonstrate and show them that we're ready to go on strike. Yeah. And it's only then, and that, so that means you have to go back into these places where, frankly, workers were spitting at you, putting their middle finger up at you, telling you to fuck off through the window, throwing shit back at you in the parking lot. And you gotta go back and keep talking to those very same workers because you can't get to 90% unity, which is what you need to have a credible strike threat. How do you start that conversation? You're like, so like, uh, how about how about those Niners? Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah, go Niners or whatever. I mean, no, not J-Lo. only that. Not only that, but the lead, the lead, the lead. What we call the lead. Um, I use the word organic leader, natural leader, but the the real, leader. the real. It's, it just says leaders. I mean, you know. Okay. Um, but the real organic leader who I talk a lot about in one of the in one of the stories in the book. Um, whose name is Marnie Payne, and I can say it out loud and love her because she's letting me now because she went through a very big change, which is why we love unions. But she'd been leading the anti-union fight um, in her unit, and she used a football... Okay, who... I can't even see, so forget it. But, like, going back to football, like, her last social media post was... What the hell was the bad Philadelphia Eagles recruit? What's his name? The When the, they had this huge star player. They paid a million dollars from me. He was a high school None of us winner. know. Okay, shit. You guys, I'm in the wrong room. None I of us know. I can go deep on football, by the way, but I digress. But she actually... But the point was, she used a huge football analogy of the Philadelphia Eagles when I was living in Philadelphia running this campaign. And it was like the final anti-union post was her summoning, uh, like a big sports analogy that the union was making all these promises like the star player of the Philadelphia Eagles and it was all a fucking lie and when the union won they were just going to walk away and screw everyone like that was like it's you had to be So a you're talking Eagles about someone fan. who went from like she actively from working spitting against spitting in unionizing. our faces and sticking her middle finger up at us and far worse and her final tweet her final Facebook post the night before the union election was vote no vote hell no um, and then by the end of the That's last day... That's a special day, kind of NLRB election, by the way. Yeah. It's a two-part election. <laughs> and I no, just want to tell no. you, like, the final night of the contract negotiations, because we had to go back into the units where people were throwing pieces of paper at us, which is an analogy for, like, what do we do when the impeachment discussion is over next week? We actually have to go talk, not to all of them, but like, we have to go talk to a whole sector of these people because we can peel them back. And so I'll just close this little segment because it's so radically important and why I love being a union organizer. By the last day of the negotiations, and the story is all in the new book, um, she wrote, thank you, Jesus, the union is Jesus, as she walked out of winning the best contract yeah. in her life. So, you know, so when you are up on people like that, it's a problem. And she led the damn strike vote after being IRI Inc.'s number one girl running the anti-union campaign. Follow-up question, are you Jesus? <laughs> Is that what we're... I mean, I think that's really interesting, like, how people become politicized and hold out until the last moment. So, like, just, just going, zooming out a little bit, you know, some people are politicized because they took, like, a post-colonial feminist class... <laughs> Um, 
and other people are politicized for through the... For the audience listening at home, Francesca is raising her <laughs> hand. <laughs> also, you know, wars uh, for oil, etc. But uh, what about people who... What about the process of being politicized through a strike? Tell us about that and why and how is that unique? Um, and, and how does it... How does it running sort of counter or different from every other way that people sort of come to political work or think about the word socialism or whatever it is, you know, or economic justice? By the way, I feel like, you know, Nato, you could like take it on this too, but really I think it isn't just a strike, although a strike is definitely uh, one of the most powerful things ever, but uh, for workers to experience. But I think the entire context of the boss fight, like what we call the boss fight, um, which is when they bring in the union busters uh, and start firing people and a lot begins to get, like their goal is what Steve Bannon and Steve Miller and the SOBs in the White House are doing right now, which is like they wake up in the morning trying to drive polarization so that no one talks to each other anymore. Because the goal of the union busters and the white nationalists who are all the same is that they don't want people talking, right? Seriously. So like the, like we, like the whole country is experiencing a boss fight and this is what workers go through all the time. So the process of like, what the We're experiencing does. the biggest boss fight yeah. right now. Like the boss is in the White House. So, um, <laughs> but like what happens to people uh, is totally intense, and they, 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 the conditions that they create are so hateful um, that workers begin to, uh, if we're doing our work right, Workers begin to club up, and the experience, honest to God, is the same as if a hurricane, a flood, or an earthquake just happened. Yeah. And the level of solidarity and people realizing which side they're on versus which side the boss is on actually happens in real life in real fights. Mm. And the kind of solidarity that comes out of it is like, you know, when you watch the flooding going on in Houston a couple of years ago, we're like, and you listen to all these interviews of people, we're like, white uh, neighbors who black people experienced who lived across the street who hated them their whole lives like came over to bail them out and save the kids and get them out of the house and take them out in a rowboat and stuff like that level of human solidarity that happens in a really serious human crisis is what a strike produces and it builds unbreakable human solidarity which is why the capitalist class has been fighting unions so damn hard in this country mm. so I mean I'm just drinking without a word. Is that to, okay? Yeah, it's great. Here, I'll give you one. You Fuck. missed a few. Um, so, to, to, I mean, to, just from my experience, I mean, what that's raising for me is like, to, to some extent, I don't care about winning as much as the terms of winning. Like, there are, I've been in union campaigns where we won stuff for workers because we had the right political connections or we had the right PR campaign or we had the right legal strategy and the workers didn't have to go through that experience that you're describing and I would rather not win than have workers win in a way that's fake for them. Um, so, uh, you know, that, don't tell my employer that, but, um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the, um, I, like, I think it's, I think the, I just feel like, like it's partly like what, what is the experience that people go through in order to, to, to have to win in the way that, in order to build the thing for the long term, ends up being so important? It's mm -hmm. a, like, frankly, it's fundamental, right? And that's why um, I love to talk about what it really means to do real organizing and building to a 90% or greater strike um, is something that will change people's lives for the rest of their lives. They will, workers will never, ever be the same when they've gone through either a massive strike or a really hard to win NLRB election. And can you can you just describe sort of like for like if people have never been through it, what it feels like 
like on a sort of sensory visceral level to walk through a workplace where that is really ready to, where 90% of the people are really ready to go outside. Yeah, like between like an orgasm and heroin, uh, like where does it land? Now, you know, I have never done heroin, but it's definitely at least <laughs> orgasm. It's definitely at least orgasm. So I'm going to look forward for sure. to. Like yeah. multiple rounds? Uh, I, of I have come um, over many a hospital. Uh, so. <laughs> but it, it is, it is, you know, I, one of the early stories in this book, I talk about a worker named Jamie Rhodes. Um, and this is, uh, so first of all, the new book, every single story in it is a story of victory set after Trump wins. So just to be clear, like the whole point it of the book. It is possible. The whole point of the book is victories that happened with tens of thousands of workers since the uh, white nationalist boss took the White House. The and book is a collective bargain, unions organizing in the fight for democracy, <laughs> out now from HarperCollins. Uh, as a Jew, when I see it, I have to read the title in Jew voice and be like, a collective bargain, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's so, a bargain. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't know that I'm uh, not the guy, but anyway, it's a detail. So um, I would say you're what? that shocking. You're I know. what? Yeah, race you're Jew. But anyway, what? Uh, but uh, but I tell it a story menacing. about Jamie Rhodes, and this like I'm serious. Like I tell a story in there. She made me cry. I was sitting in this pancake house there. So a worker that I was involved in helping organize and form her union, uh, technical worker in Philadelphia, 2016, 2017. So actually, like the women's march happens in January, whatever, it was 20th, 2017. Um, and I would say at some personal dumb organizer level, the Women's March that made me even happier than that, even though I hung off a building in San Francisco that day in the rain, um, was the strike um, by several hundred women um, to get their contract uh, out of the organizing campaign that I was helping lead in Philadelphia in 2016. So now we spilled it in 2017. It's a huge LLC. It's this big multinational company. People are like, you can't fight with a few hundred women against a big multinational company, nurses and technical workers. And Jamie Rhodes uh, goes from being like either apolitical Republican, like many workers do, because that's like the boss hires the workers. That's why I love our work we do. You know, boss hires a bunch of workers. They have no collective political affinity. They just get a job. They're at the hospital. Next thing you know, she realizes we can't win a contract. She's already getting totally politicized through this fight. And like the boss is just not moving. And all six other hospitals, contracts are settled, and there's one big corporation holding out. And literally, at as she's retelling me the story, because when we're in the heat of the fight, like we don't have time for a lot of storytelling. So I go back in to interview a bunch of these workers when I'm writing the book. And Jamie starts telling me this story about being at her National Labor Relations board count. And she says, it was like the most exciting thing. Like I had been walking the gauntlet. They had this union buster in there. It felt really tense at work. But we were all getting more and more united because they were building their union inside of the hospital. And at, at the NLRB election vote count, she said that as she sat down to be like an official observer for the workers against the boss, all the union lawyers there, all the boss there, and then the government officials counting their ballots, she said that her lip began to quiver. And I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. And she's like, no, no. She's like, there's only one other time in my entire life, Jane, when my lip ever quivered, uncontrollably quivered. And she was getting really intense in the story. And the, other, the only other time in this worker, in this person's life, that her lip quivered was on her wedding day 
when her husband was walking down the aisle and she'd been in love with him for 15 years and they finally had enough fucking money to get married because mm -hmm. they were so poor. And she literally described her wedding and the national relations vote count as the only two times in her life when her lip quivered and that is the kind of fucking power that can beat the bosses. Oh, <laughs> yes. I was gonna assume heroin, but that's wrong and unromantic. Uh, but orgasms are a lot more romantic. Um, quiver, another orgasm quiver. Do you quiver when you're on heroin? I don't know. Does anyone know? The National Labor Relations Board elections make my butthole quiver. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jane, you have a very specific approach to how you think um, uh, a workers' revolution and a, a massive overhaul of our economic system can be accomplished Strike. in the United States. Oh, yeah in addition to striking, but you specifically target three and talk about three sectors. So we're talking education, healthcare, and logistics. What are logistics? Like what? Is that, what like, are we? Is that like Evite? <laughs> you know, uh, someone who taught me about logistics um, who's in this room, and I'm, I'm gonna actually have to ask for just a full round of applause because I was trying to figure out what the hell she actually did when I met her who's featured in this book in a very serious way is named Taylor Hesselgrave who's somewhere out in the audience right now I see a hand and Taylor Hesselgrave uh, I uh, got fired by her son of a bitch uh, employer um, for doing something like creating a pay time off policy um, last I looked, and uh, she's here, and I'm, I feel flattered and honored, um, even though I can't see anything because it's all black to me, but I know she's here. But uh, when I was trying to get her and her coworkers to describe what they did at Lenetics, called Win More Now, I call them Win More in the book because they did a rebranding campaign after the workers gave them a bad name. And, really? Um, yeah, really. At Win More, I'm like, you take that name away from them. But anyway, so, um, but like they were describing, I was like, what the, what do you, what's coding? Okay, you know, really, what do you do? Um, so she could explain it much better, but they were like, you know, when 10 billion rubber duckies leave on a cargo ship from somewhere in China, right. um, and they're gonna go to like five countries, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but something about logistics had to do with like them creating some kind of system that meant they knew after 5,000 rubber duckies got dropped off, there was another 4,329 rubber... Anyway, so I'm sure it's much more complicated. But anyway, logistics is like... I love the rubber duckies. Think about, I can think about Amazon it. Prime, right? Some asshole named Jeff Bezos who earns $13 million a minute. Yes. I think I say in the book, right? His yes. wealth goes up by $13 million a minute, um, literally. Uh, he... Um, logistics is like Amazon Prime says that shit's going to get to you in two days and there's choke points in that system like literally interrupting the huge global logistics supply chain uh, which is all kind of just-in-time production right now mm -hmm. um, it could screw up capitalism like nobody's business so we're talking about even Amazon workers right and people who are sort Amazon of workers at a warehouse uh, Amazon drivers and those cute little vans I have now because sure. forbid they pay US postal workers or UPS who have a union and have a good contract so now the assholes creating his own Amazon Prime buses we should flatten all the tires somehow not to the workers but um, he's like uh, like, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, like if those workers walked out of the warehouse or those drivers just stopped driving and suddenly there was no Amazon Prime functioning, um, that would cause an enormous crisis for Jeff Bezos, which I think it's like long overdue. Um, and then healthcare workers so, and so education. So logistics are fancy, is a fancy way of saying people who move shit. Yeah. Yeah. Moving shit. Moving shit. 
And continuing with the healthcare workers, I mean, I think what's so interesting about when you talk about healthcare workers and education workers, you're talking about community. You're, you, you talk a lot about um, the, the people, specifically women, women of color, who are embedded in their communities already. They're already, and when they strike, and when they organize, right, they're organizing um, not only for themselves, but also they understand that the beneficiaries are their community. Um, and I think that's fascinating. And also, uh, what's my question? What if you're not one of those people? <laughs> what if you're on the outside of those people? Um, like, where, like what? Well, I mean, you know, like what if you work at Sears or work at some just, you know, that capitalism has configured itself so that workers don't have power, and so if you are in a job where even if you did get everybody to walk out, you wouldn't bring the system to its knees, what is, the, and then and then they they spend the few shekels that they have on your book, and they're like, fuck, this doesn't have to do with me. Like, what should they do? Um, uh, one is they should support all the workers who actually have strategic power to go on strike, and so part of what I talk about that's hard that organizers have to do and we all have to do, frankly, as a broader movement, um, is understand how to make priorities. Like, there are, like, actually part of what we need to do is Not a fan out, of that. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> what I have to do, like, I think in the 1930s, um, just like during the Civil Rights Movement, I mean, if you look at both movements, and I sort of touch on both of them at a strategy level, um, there are some workers who are more able at any given moment throughout the arc of history um, to be what we call like more strategic actors. And it doesn't mean that they're more important human beings. It just means that from a strategic perspective, if they can create a crisis for the capitalist system, they're strategic. And in the 1930s, like if the buggy whip factors, factory workers called, um, like we would want to make sure that we had some theory about how the buggy whip factory workers would do better. How's that call happen? It's like, <laughs> like it's very the buggy. Oh, hello there, uh, this is a buggy whip factory. Uh, thank you, one gentleman in the front row laughing at my joke. Uh, See, this you need to loosen up. So not Robert Reich, which I really like, even though I like right. him too. I'm just saying that's so. Listen, great. I will make this Robert Reich in a second. I have a I I have a, a whiteboard marker. You say the word, all right? And that word is capitalism. I did. So, Delicious. right, so continue. By the way, nice tequila, thanks. Um, so, uh, no, I'm just saying, like, the, like, a hard thing for our, like, the word power is hard for the movement. Another thing that's hard for the movement is, like, the concept of strategy in strategic sectors. And that at any given moment, like in the 1930s, it was coal, steel, right? Like, there are key... Strategic sectors. A strategic sector is not coal in the year 2020? <laughs> is that what no. you're telling me? Yeah. It's Ixnay. podcasting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> podcasting. That's it. I keep forgetting the podcast workers. First union. podcasts and then the revolution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But no, I mean, seriously, it's not... It is um, just like the concept of a natural or organic leader in the workplace... It, it does, you know, when you make a priority, it doesn't mean that some workers, some people are more special than others. It's about how do we fucking win? And we have to make hard decisions sometimes. Right. And there is, 
the concept of strategy, just like when you're, if you think about the Electoral College and the uh, election that's coming up, like mm -hmm. some states what? matter more. I know, is there an election coming up? Some states matter more than I'm really other states. really heartbroken about John Delaney, everybody. He dropped out. <laughs> Yo, he was such a thirst trap candidate, though. Did you check yeah. out his Instagram? His calves were insane. Like, you know, I'm, I like. I know this sounds like a joke, but John. He looked Delaney, like a roll-on deodorant. Come on now. <laughs> he was a. He, yeah, he was a degree ad in a candidate. Um, <laughs> no, for real though. He like tried to do box jumps and then Instagrammed. It was very, very horrifying. Amazing that they would Instagram that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, um, Baldi's, Baldi's going to bald. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, so you're talking about these key sectors and how we shouldn't be we shouldn't be afraid of, like, identifying those key sectors in these. Yeah, just like there are key precincts in a political turnout election and there are key states in a national election. There are also key strategic actors in the economic arena. And if we would just get back to the economic arena, we'd be in better shape to begin with as a progressive movement. But also... It, again, like the key thing is it, it's not about making someone feel bad because they're not part of that sector. And there's lots of ways. First of all, those workers should also still form a union. But it's, you can, it's, it's way harder to do it some, in, if you're a you know, rural-based childcare worker than it is if you're a um, registered nurse, tech worker, dietary housekeeping, whatever, if you're like a hospital worker. Like there are reasons, there are reasons why the word strategy exists, and I feel like the left basically like doesn't know how to spell the word most of the time. It makes me fucking crazy. Strategy. So, um, the like in in the time that I've been in the labor movement, there's sort of been this like people are always writing articles about what the labor movement should be doing, and uh, you know the labor movement should be more radical, the labor movement should be more militant, the labor movement should be more democratic. Uh, That's all true, but yeah. It, sure. But, uh, or should form a third party or like, there's should always. Should cut their ties to the Democratic Party. Should, yeah, should, wor should work with community. Like, there's always a list of things that is, you know, good, seems good to do, but it's like, it's always like, well, who's, who's going to do that? So, because there's often that is coupled with, like, if the bureaucracy just gets out of the way, you know, the workers will. There's like, a, a, people on the left have a lot of sentimentality about the workers and. What I have learned uh, is that the workers are worker are people um, and are very much like people. Mm -hmm. uh, workers are people. almost exactly it's like amazing. people. Uh, they really workers resemble are, them. They, yeah. Workers are almost exactly like yeah. people. Yeah. In that some of them are assholes. Uh, yes. <laughs> and, um, and Marnie Payne spit at me and put her finger up. I'm just saying. So, until she led the strike. Yeah, I, uh, I had a... Uh, How many times have you been spit at, right? I mean, oh, come many. On. I, had had a, many. I was about to say, I had a bargain team member say he was going to stick a cattle prod in my ass. Yes. Uh, so I, yeah, Same threat. And uh, I said, lube it up first, hey! buddy. Um, so... Um, he did not say that in the campaign, I'm sure, but continue. Uh, I did, yeah. <laughs> my coworkers can call I heard someone say I would it. say that. Okay. Um, so, um, so it's like... The, you know, the in in my experience, like the applying the the lessons of your books requires a level of strategy and analysis and discipline and the ability to execute a program. And from what I've seen, there's sort of two groups of people that do that: either some cadre of progressive staff who come into a union and take it over and run run the program and move it, or a cadre of communists who come into the rank and file and take over the union and run the program. 
I don't these I've never heard of these things happening spontaneously. Yeah. So how does it work? Yeah. And not only yeah, not only is it not happening spontaneously, but I would actually bridge the gap of what you just said because part of what I talk about in this book and the uh, the Los Angeles teachers strike is the example on the whole chapter I walk through to talk about it with. Um, where I said, you know, my second, my, no shortcuts, the second book, I talk, a, I give a huge chapter about the rebuild of the Chicago Teachers Union. And in this book, I give a description of a, the rebuild of the Los Angeles Teachers Union. And in both instances, so like, where's the evidence of like how you get to massive victories? In both instances, in Chicago in 2012, in Los Angeles, it took both things you just said. It took rank and file workers who had really seriously good politics, generally, I don't know, socialist or something like that, who were politicized, deciding that their union sucked and they were sick of it. Um, uh, that's Re like read a, your mouth, that's like, Yeah, no, by the way, like uh, target-rich environment. My union sucks, like it's a target-rich environment. So um, it's like democracy. Target-rich environment. Yeah, yeah, so, definitely. So like, instead of, of saying, it. my union sucks, bye, I'm not going to be part of my union. Yeah, that, so um, that's what leftists do initially. They're like, ugh, my union sucks. So they go to all this work in the community, in, Chica in the Chicago Teachers Union chapter, in the last book I talk a lot about this. And then literally they were like, a whole bunch of left-wing teachers initially in Chicago when school closures were beginning in like 2008, 2009, um, a lot of these left-wing teachers were like, ugh, our union sucks. And so they were going out and working with the community to try and stop the school closures. And literally the real story, and I'll get back to like the link between the two comments Nano made, is that they uh, go to a public hearing about school closures, and there's a whole bunch of black people, because like all the schools are being closed by Rahm Emanuel, Barack Obama, whatever, you know, in Chicago, closing schools for black kids um, while they're campaigning on behalf of whatever. Okay, so I digress. So, um, so they go to this big hearing, and a bunch of the like community-based organizations in the audience say, they start testifying, like, we're teachers, and we really need your help. And that literally this black community organization, COCO, in Chicago, like, looks at the teachers in front of all of them and says, you fucking idiots. Like, take over your union. That's what we need you to do. <laughs> and then they decide to, like, form a caucus, a slate inside their union and take it over. And then they get that far. So they, they win control of the union, just like the Los Angeles teachers win control in 2014. And the first thing they did, because they're smart, is look for experienced organizers like NATO and myself who actually know how to immediately put a plan to get to 90% unity across Republicans, mm. independents, and, also, and mostly undecided. Most workers, just like most Americans, just checked out. And then they immediately hired people who are skilled in the strategy of building to 90% unity to create the crisis that the workers wanted. Because they understood, as in my case, in my life nurses, and in this case, teachers, that they actually could get as far as winning, but they actually didn't know how to build super unity. And there's no leftist diatribe debate going on with tens of thousands of workers in my life. Like, what's the, we don't need staff. There's no staff needed in this movement. We're anti-staff. The rank and file can just rise up and do it. Like, the actual workers I work with don't have that delusion. They're like, we have no fucking idea how to get to a strike, Jane. Mm. And so they hire smart people who actually have done it before. Because when we over-romanticize that people like... Like I always say, like I work a lot with nurses, a lot of my life, hospital workers and nurses, and like 
I've never had this debate with nurses. They're like, Jane, we have no idea how to make the boss cave. So what do we do? Like, if you get sick and you come to the ICU, like, we're going to save your ass and we know what to do. But, like, they don't have a class called how do you beat the boss in negotiations in nursing school. They don't have that. And after, that. after one round, they know how to do it and they can do it. They're good. Like, they're good to go. Like, one round. But, like, it's hard fucking work to beat a union buster in this country look at Donald Trump because he's yeah. in the White House well and, and transitioning from that I mean we have we have 10 more minutes and then I want to we are going to open it up to you all because we got some smart amazing people in this audience and so you, you all deserve a chance and to ask and only the smart amazing people should ask questions yes. the dummies you know who you are check in zip it <laughs> Ask the person next yeah. to you, if, am I the dummy, before you ask the question? Capitalists, you know, just hold it. Hold it in. Yeah. Um, but on that question of... Uh, what was that question? Have a drink. What were you just... Yes, on that question. That, that actually it takes smart rank-and-file workers hiring people who are skilled in, the, skilled in how do you actually build struggle to win. That. That linkage is oh, what we need a lot of. Yeah, well, well okay. what fascinates me as someone who's never been part of a strike, but who sees that phrase, unbreakable solidarity, as something that I Favorite. think is so admirable and so incredible and really actually does come to fruition through the process of building a union and going on strike, and something that, you know, like we, I think we all dream of having at a national level, and something that we've seen now as, you know, uh, we're in the. Democratic primary moment of our 2020 election. We're trying to keep our eye on the prize of beating Donald Trump. We see, um, you know, a lot of breakable solidarity. Let's be real. Like, there's just a lot of solidarity that can be broken uh, when it comes to progressives or the left. Like, I guess extrapolating on a one, you know, union story, like, how do we get to that level of unbreakable solidarity on a national level? Um, you know, first we pick... Uh, That's it, everybody. <laughs> Good night. So first, uh, we have to zero in on the same concept that we do in a union fight, which is that there actually are workers who have, um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the field of struggle, not in the field of human compassion and we're all equal, in the, in the field of battlefield struggle, which is what every union campaign is and what the election is already and it's going to look like, there are people in every neighborhood, community, workplace, church, mosque, synagogue, uh, soccer league, who have more capacity than others to actually lead their uh, people around them, mm -hmm. people who they know. And uh, often those people who have the capacity to lead their fellow country people in whatever that club is or workplace um, are people who, because they have some power and some sense of their own capacity, they tend to sit back unless they're convinced that there's a real plan to win, a credible plan to win. Like that's a major. Understanding what a plan to win is, like workers, I always say workers aren't stupid. Like workers understand, like you're the next person who knocks my fucking door and promised me the revolution or whatever you're promising people. Like, first of all, organizers don't promise people anything because, like, up to you to do it. So, um, <laughs> really, it's like the first thing we say is, like, we can't do this shit. It's up to you and your coworkers. We promise there's going to be work. 
<laughs> right, we promise. Like our conversation at the front end is like, so here's, we're here to talk to you about something that's gonna take a lot of your time and a lot of your energy, right? You ready to do that, right? It's called framing the hard choice, but okay, it's a different topic. So, um, so like, you need, like you and your kids can keep not having healthcare or, we friend the, or you can decide to stand up with your coworkers and actually fight to win the kind of healthcare plan that you need or Medicare for all, whatever. So same Can you analogy. slow that down just for a second? Oh. I know that you like, so what is that hard choice? It's healthcare or death. Netflix? Death, okay, death. got it. Death. Right, you, healthcare, no, healthcare or death. Uh, and that's a choice that we frame. Like when someone, so anyway, there, so it's two things. Friend the hard choice is like when a worker is, has told you that what they really want um, is to win a healthcare plan with great coverage for their kids. And then you're looking at them and you're on doing a house call on the doors and they're like afraid to sign the union card or sign the petition that we're asking them to sign. Framing the hard choice is like a science and art of our work and it's important to then look at that worker and say, so what I hear you saying, Sally, is that you're prepared to never have health care ever, and when your kid is sick, you're going to have no ability to get the health care coverage you need. Like, yeah. that's framing the hard choice yeah. and making that worker think really hard about do they actually want to save their kid's life or not. Because if they do, then you've got to get your ass out the door and come to the union meeting. Um, so, like, our conversations are hard conversations with people. They're about real power and how the world works. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to have to do that a lot on the doors in this election, too, in order to pull it out. So, there was some other thought there. I forget what it was. No, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was just more about, like, in. unbreakable solidarity and how to build that. Oh, because there are these key people. And, by the way, um, Taylor, um, Hester Grave was one. And it's really clear when you read the incredible story about the dramatic action she and her coworkers took um, for real because there are people who their coworkers look up to and we have a perfect example of one in the audience here where workers got together, like big tech is promising, like when they hire you, they're like, we don't need a PTO policy at the new startup in whatever company we're in in San Francisco. You don't have to worry about rules and regulations and personnel policies because you're going to make a lot of money and, you know, it's all cool and we're tech here and we have nice cafeterias in the workplace and we eat good organic food and whatever else we do. And you can take off whenever you need to until you actually realize that you never get a day off in the new tech sector because you're working your fucking ass off every day. And so a bunch of workers got together and who did they trust to make the PTO policy? Someone named Taylor. Um, and then it turned out when they won an amazing PTO policy from this high-tech startup, which looks like all the rest of them, last I could tell, uh, then they walked her out and fired her because they realized that they actually might demand more things from the tech sector um, in San Francisco, right? So we need the Taylor Hesselgraves of the world, um, in my opinion, to lead the revolution and are doing it. I have one more question. Okay. So I, I have one more question. I feel like it is... What I feel like is a dif differentiating liberals from from radicals uh, in the in, in the year 2020 is personal hygiene. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Uh, no, I, you guys though, dude. I, I use I'm a ra I'm a revolutionary that uses Kiehl's. All right, no, <laughs> like listen. I also make my own eye cream. We'll talk about the recipe afterwards. Oh, oh, fuck you. It's expensive <laughs> herbal herbal material. Anyway, the the point is is like, you know, we we loosely throw You the don't word get this face with Kirkland brand eye cream? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we throw the word communist and socialist, and I think it's really interesting to see that like and I and I guess I, I'm trying to formulate a question around is the difference between a liberal and a radical kind of the problem 
problematizing capitalism and really seeing that as something that is un a system that is untenable, um, that is n it is anti-democratic, um, and that the site of struggle being the workplace, being unionizing, like you know, like how do you how do you knock doors when you're like I got a bunch of socialists and maybe communists behind me? Like how do you um, dip? members' toes into the water and workers' toes into the water without, you know, freaking them out too much. It's definitely not by talking about socialists and communists. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so just, just for starters. And yeah. it's not, by the way, about like handing I better the stop selling these newspapers. <laughs> 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 I got a lot of newspapers to sell. Every headline has an exclamation mark. Wait, wait, wait. I like, I like exclamation points. You know what I mean? Like, the exclamation points are good. In fact, I think Taylor had a lot of exclamation lap dogs. points in our first Don't email. call people lapdogs. Yes. <laughs> of the imperial ruling class. <laughs> that's, that's what, that, isn't that the best way to go on the doors? Yeah. Like, when you go on the doors, you knock on a worker's door, and the first thing you say is, like, I'm here from the Revolutionary People's Party to save yeah. you. I have, a, I have a character that I do sometimes called the guy who brothers too much. Who's just like, listen, brother, we need to stand together. That guy? Yeah, that guy. Right, don't use that shit either. So uh, none of that's going to work at all. Handing out newspapers, calling him brother, uh, none of that works at all. Right, the, the, the only thing that really matters when you're doing what we call house calling and going on the doors, because you got a list of workers that someone stole or took a picture of off the wall, because that's how we get our list. Uh, you know, when you go on the doors, like, the first thing you have to do, well, first of all, you got to... There's the door slam training, you know. Um, but the first thing you have to do is be able to actually get someone to open the door. And the first thing you have to ask them is like, hey, look, if you could change three things at work tomorrow, what would they be? Mm -hmm. That's not communism. That's not socialism. That's like a really basic self-interest question. Like, just pretend you're a boss for a day. Like, what are the first three things that you would change at work? Love it. And it's from understanding and shutting your effing mouth and listening to people that you learn how to move the conversation with them. Like, that's actually how workers begin to go through the process that's very radicalizing, um, and it's not about um, advertising any, you know, any of that shit. Not only that, but, like, I remember in Nevada, um, by the way, if you've never been to Nevada in Vegas, where I was working for many years, it's like 110 degrees in the summer, and I remember this young pile of anarchists who came because they wanted to work on our campaigns We in always Vegas. go in a pile, too. Pile. <laughs> Six of them came at once from an anarchist cell in Philadelphia. To, like, we heard that we could learn how to organize here. And they all had, like, clown tattoos and shit all over their arms that scared me when I met them. And the first test for me that, like, we could get these little revolutionaries who were, like, 22, 23, and 24 who wanted to build the revolution, my first test to them was I looked at them and I said, you're going to have to take the metal out of your nose, off your eyebrow, and cover your tattoos in 110 degrees. And if you're willing to do that, I might hire you. And the ones who said yes went on to become really good because you can't freak the fucking workers out on the door. Don't look like a freak if you're trying to talk to a worker. Just wow. Saying. Very, very controversial, very divisive. I know. Now I'm doing like HR coaching for like how do you win a union campaign. But anyway. I Step one, don't be a freak. <laughs> Step two. But can you be... Freaky deaky, though. <laughs> Step two, freaky deaky. 
Um, I just, before we open it up, I do want to, I found this really fascinating in listening to podcasts with you and reading your work about your, your discussion of structure tests. I mean, I think you're someone who believes in the um, transformative nature of the strike, but you're also, you don't have rose-colored glasses on when it comes to when and how to stage a strike. And so part of that building, which is, I mean, again, people who like to call radicals, yeah, idealists, et cetera, Nada que ver, you know, these are people who are, the, they are hard workers, they, they understand the stakes, and I think one of those things was structure tests. I'm fascinated with what that is, and I want you to explain that. Are we running out of tequila? Um, <laughs> I was going to say, uh, structure test is, yeah, thank you, it's two of my favorite words, it's probably like ten of my favorite words, so two, that's two of my favorite words in the English language is structure and test. Um, and a structure test is essentially... The other two are D's nuts. <laughs> Sorry. A structure test is like actually um, something where you are asking in a workplace uh, every single worker to sign a hand-signed petition saying we're united to win a PTO policy or we're united to... Um, when a healthcare plan that we actually lets us take care of our kids, and they're about that long. Oh my God! Every leftist petition I've ever read is like five pages long. <laughs> that, so our petitions are like two sentences, by the way. So because um, the point is not the sentence, the point is that you're trying to build a structure test, and you're going to give someone who you think might be an organic leader or a natural leader a petition, and they're going to go to their coworkers, and we're going to say you have to get 100% of the signatures in your unit and your shift. And they're gonna go out and try and get 100% of the signatures and you give them a few days. And long story short, long, long book story short is if they can actually get all of their coworkers, especially in the face of threats from their employer, to sign the petition, then it means that you automatically know that you've got someone with high capacity whose coworkers will listen to them. And then you run that across the whole facility multiple, multiple times until you get to like 90% on every petition, and that we call a structure test because you're literally teaching ordinary people how to build the kind of structure that's powerful enough of the working class to up against the structure called capitalism and beat them. We don't guess in our work. We don't think some workers are going to go on strike. We don't dream how many are going to go on strike. We count numbers every single damn day in every campaign, and we structure test the whole way through our campaigns so that we know where do we have weaknesses, where is everything good and strong, and and we're talking to the workers. It's not like a secret. Like we're talking to the workers all the whole time. This is a structure test. This is what you're doing. You and your coworkers have to know, are you really ready to win the campaign? And the only way you're going to know that is when 90% of the workers across every single unit in the hospital, in my case, or school, um, have actually signed their name to say, I'm standing with my coworkers ready to strike if the boss is going to screw us again next week in negotiations. Mm. That's a structure test. And they're hugely important. And they matter. Um, and most of the progressive movement has never heard of them, and it terrifies me. So, right. yeah. We could use more of them more broadly outside of the labor movement as well. Oh, my God. So many, I have a million questions for you, Jane. Um, but just give it up for Jane McAlevey for <laughs> dealing with this. And because... Because... We have some smart, very powerful people in the audience who have been mentioned here tonight as well. I just want to give y'all a chance to just ask Jane anything you want. Um, come forward. You don't have to be funny or insightful, but the dum-dums, you know, stay in your seat. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, I'm fucking with you. We, we just, have time for a couple of questions. Just a couple and of questions. And then afterwards, 
we have we have a bunch of copies of Jane's new book to sell outside. Uh, we have some of my first album to sell outside. Uh, the NATO Green Party. Uh, I have so. I love NATO Green. Also, the whiteness album, the, which the, you can download on Apple. The book is here. The album you can play it on your disc band. Uh, <laughs> Or the 60 But if anyone had a question, car. I can also run. Yeah, come up. Come up. Hey, Jane. How's it going? Good, thanks. Good. Um, so, my question is about uh, building political power uh, for the labor movement. Um, and I think in your books, you've talked kind of about political power in a very pragmatic way. Like, we can get this particular rep to back us, or we can get this particular champion elected who's going to back us, right? Um, but always working within the Democratic Party. And I think there's a lot to be said for like, we don't want to build the Labor Party just to break with the Democrats, but can we really achieve a political social revolution built on labor with the Democratic Party? If we can't, um, how are we gonna build a Labor Party and like where is the um, priority in doing that vis-a-vis -vis just continuing workplace campaigns? You know, because like eventually there's only so much you can win against an employer and we need our own party as well. I just want to give you props for saying vis-a-vis -vis and not saying first past the post. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am uh, definitely not a fan of the Democratic Party, by the way, um, as a general rule. So while I think that we eventually, it'd be nice to have, uh, this is such a complicated question that you asked. I mean, it'd be nice to have an independent labor party, though I just want to flash um, two words, which is Boris Johnson. Um, meaning that I think when I was younger, before, yeah, what, what do we say about Boris Johnson? Fucking evil. Anyway, um, before, I, when I was younger, I used to think the thing that would save us is a parliamentary You could system. say that he's trying to bore his Johnson into the European Union. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Yeah, uh, he is, that too. Dad jokes. But it's not, like, I guess I worry less about the, the structures of the way our work plays right now, because it's more important to me that we, like, for example, in the U.S., which we just have this shitty two-party system. Although, by the way, now that I do a lot of work in Europe, they have a shitty multi-party system. So, um, the, so it's like, it, like the, the things that I thought when I was much younger were salvation are not really a salvation unless and until we actually understand how to build serious worker organization and structure test it and win. Doesn't matter what the structure is. Like, like there's. So, to me, we have this crappy Democratic Party and this crappy two-party system, and part of. Part of why I don't obsess, part of why I don't like lead, like handing out the newspaper that says build the Labor Party, it's not because I don't want one. Of course I want one. It's because for us to know that we're ready to do something useful with an independent party means that we first could figure out how to win primaries inside the Democratic Party, talk about target-rich environment, and knock out every bad corporate Democrat in the country. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a really beautiful example of like, She's a Democrat, technically, right now, and she's like lit the fucking country on fire last I looked, and I love her for what she's doing in this country. And she's in the party, even though she's very skeptical about it and she's building a sort of third way, right? But, so to me, the most important first task is I wanna worry less today about what a party is called that we need, and more, more important to me is that people in this room and many millions more learn first how to win and seize a democratic primary. Uh, last I looked, there's some Bernie people here, there's some other folks trying to win a primary. Like, so learn how to build enough structure and enough power 
to win because when we seize control of safe seats, like I've spent my life seizing safe seats within the Democratic Party tent by running rank and file workers for office, like I spent a lot of time running rank and file union members for office against corporate Democrats and winning. Um, and then look what they do, like look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So she's a Democrat technically, but she's a left-wing Democrat. And so I think the first order of business is run and take strategically as many seats as we can in the current system, and then let's figure out how to build something else. But like we have to first, we have to like, like walk before we can run. So I'm not worried about getting into a long debate about what kind of political party and who's doing it, because most people can't even figure out how to win a fucking primary. <laughs> and when we can win a primary, then and we win a lot of them, then let's worry about what other more perfect political structure we need. But until we do, we got a lot of work to do, and we should be doing it now. Amazing. I am very worried about getting into a long debate. I would like to avoid a long debate, yeah. if that's possible. Is there, we have like one, two, two more questions. Time for one or two more questions. Over here. I can maybe stretch this there to you. There was a hand in the second row, too. Here? Yeah. Um, this is very different than the last question. Um, so you've been doing this for 30 years. Um, 30, 35, 35, yeah. I'm getting old. Yeah. Uh, 40, shit. Yeah. When we do this kind of work, you know, we give all of ourselves because, you know, it's life or death, right? Uh, yeah. And then burnout happens. What are your rules for avoiding burnout? I wouldn't ask this of anyone else, but I actually would expect a, a strong answer from you here. Podcasts. Um, no, no, definitely not podcasts. <laughs> Aside from podcasts. As the strategic sector. Um, Heroin. What? No? <laughs> Orgasm. Orgasm. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, aside from that, which does really help. But um, I think, um, I, I, I'm not always sure I am the best person to answer that question. You've been doing this for 35 years. I have, yeah. And I care a lot about it, and I just keep doing it. You so I have my own, I think, <laughs> first of all, it's like to have a strategy for what you personally like, I think each person is different, right? Just like each worker is different, each person is different. So um, I know that for me, um, the way I do it is uh, I, I'm basically all in, um, and then I take huge breaks. So that's my own personal um, strategy since I was like 17 years old, which is when I flipped to full-time work. And that's, I can work personally for three years straight, um, sleeping on about five hours. Um, and then if I don't break, and uh, in the old days there weren't, cell when I started this work we didn't have cell phones, to be honest, so um, I didn't worry about it. These days it means um, leaving, putting the cell phone down, if not disconnecting it personally. And then I get on generally an airplane, sometimes a train if it's Latin America, and I check the fuck out of the United States, and I go someplace very far away, and I climb mountains, and I jump off of I do extreme skiing in faraway countries or whatever I'm doing, um, and I do nothing but seriously play in the outdoors um, for about six months, and I completely recharge, and that's me, but that's not everyone. I've had a lot of young staff who have no idea how to self-discipline, and I spend a lot of time teaching young organizers, 
um, how to learn how to figure out what it is that they need to do to not burn out. So acknowledging that burnout is real in the kind of work we do, and then teaching young, like when I teach a young staff person what it means to build a successful work plan each week and have a daily work plan and a weekly work plan, I also have serious conversations about what it's gonna take for them not to burn out. Because if they're talented, we need them not to burn out. So, but I think it, I think just acknowledging it and having a plan for it, and then teaching people, literally when I mentor people, I mean I've mentored, I don't know, you probably have too, like hundreds of young organizers and thousands of worker leaders and having a real conversation about what it means for you to do the things that you need to do to not burn out, it's just, it just needs to be an honest part of the conversation. I know how I do it. I have like, I'm fucking all in, and then I'm completely checked out, and then I'm completely back in. That, that's not gonna work for everybody. Um, so it depends who you are, but just being, just front-ending the conversation matters and making a plan to not let yourself completely get overwhelmed and burn out matters. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and it's worked for me for 30, Five years, and I'm. Where where do you extreme ski though? Yeah. Huh? Where where's where's like the best Mountain. extreme skiing? New Zealand. Wouldn't uh, pick New Zealand at New all. Zealand. <laughs> yeah, because it's summertime, and the last the strike I end that we were we had the largest nursing home strike in American history in Connecticut and Rhode Island, and it was summertime when it ended, and I was burning out after the Florida recount, and my leader said to me, you can't leave yet, even though I'd just come back from Florida where I was gonna like blow my brains out after the Florida recount in 2000. And he was like, I'm sorry, like we have a 77 nursing home strike coming, and so you're gonna have to like not blow your head off yet. So I went like six more months, um, and then it was summertime, and I just wanted to just jump off the back of mountainside, so I had to go to New Zealand. Can, can, I, can I chime in on this? Yes. Yeah. So. Uh, you don't extreme ski, let I me do guess. Not, I definitely, <laughs> these curves do not extreme ski. Or, <laughs> uh, not in any kind See, of way. we're all different. Um, uh, I mean, movements need cadre. And the, the, I mean, the left, like, historically has had a structure for it. And it doesn't matter that, it, you know, that you're, like, a cell of the Communist Workers' Party or any other sort of named organization. But, like, there are people, in fact, in this room who I you know, have been my, like, ride-or-die comrades for 25 years, who, you know, like, we've have, got, you know, had charted a life through the labor movement and who understand the political vision and can talk through the struggles and will, like, listen to me when I've just gotten my ass handed to me and say, I understand, that sounds really hard. Now get back in the ring. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, and yeah. there, there is no political project that doesn't have those kinds of relationships at its core. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. You guys, give it up for Jane McAlevey. <laughs> Renato Green. Renato Green. Francesca Fria. The Bituation Room. Follow it on iTunes and all the podcasts. Thank you so Buy much. Buy the shit outside. Thank you, Thank Francesca you. and Dano. I love these two already. We'll see you outside for book buying or book signing and cocktails. <laughs>